Ephesians chapter number 5, and uh, to all of you guys that were complaining about it being cold in here when you walked in, now you know why, because it's warm in here now, okay? So just chill on the complaining department, okay? 1-800-THAT-AWAY, all right? Ephesians chapter 5, if you will, verse 18 is where we're going to go back into, uh, we're still looking at the big picture as our theme, and this morning I, I want to get back into 518, which is, kinda, which is where we were, and then we really kind of departed way out and got some things in on creation and Satan and so forth. And we're going to continue in that because in, in 518, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You'll notice that 518 starts with the word and. That, so there's something before that. So go back up to verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In order to walk in wisdom, in order to walk wisely, in order to walk circumspectly, you think about walking through a cactus patch, you're going to walk how? circumspectly, very carefully. You're going to pay attention to where you're putting your feet down. You're going to pay attention to how you're going and what you're doing. And when you do that, in order to do that, in order to walk in wisdom, in order to walk appropriately, you have to do verse 17. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So having a walk of wisdom starts with understanding what the will of the Lord is. Well, what's the will of the Lord? He would have all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Real simple. Not complex, not, you know, brain surgery. You know, oh, Jeff Foxworthy's got a routine and he talks about, you know, you're a redneck if you're laying on the surgery table and the surgeon says, we're going to open him up and root around in there a little bit and see what we can find. You know, now you're in trouble. It's none of that. Religion makes that the case. Religion makes it to where you got to dissect this and that. Paul, God's word says, you want to have a walk of wisdom, first thing you need to do is understand the will of God. You need to be saved. You need to know that Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day. But what you really need to know is that you need him. It's not that he did it, because he did it. You can go into any courtroom in the country, in the world, and prove the very fact against the laws of evidence and the laws of authenticity that Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, hands washed, done. But why did he do it? Well, you needed him. You need him. You need a savior. And because he's your savior and you then trust him. You don't walk the aisle. You don't get up here. You don't hug my neck. You don't do, you just, you in the privacy of your own heart. Faith is a private matter. I know what happens out there in the world today. People, well, don't push your faith on me. It's not pushing faith. Faith is private. Faith is between you and God. That's where faith rests and resides. So when you understand that, you know what you are? You're a sinner. You deserve hell. You deserve the lake of fire. But God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. While you were a sinner, what did God do? He died for you. He didn't love you. He died for you. That death demonstrates his love for you. So you trust him. You just simply trust. 
it's not a work, it's not an activity. You place your faith in his activity. And when that happens, you pass from death to life spiritually. And then you begin to grow. You begin to learn. You come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's what has happened here in 518. And be not drunk with wine where in his excess, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, with the Spirit. Being filled. The sister verse is Colossians 3 where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So you get saved. Man, the, first, when the moment you get saved, the question is, is, okay, now what? I got saved. I have eternal forgiveness. I'm on my way to heaven. I didn't do this. He did it for me. I trusted him. Now what? Well, let's be filled with, consumed by. Fill it, to fill it up, to grip your heart, to grip your mind, to grip your thinking, and say, you know what? I need to get in the Word, and I need to find out who I am and begin to study that. And when you begin to do that, you really quickly begin to realize that when Paul says, be not drunk with wine, he's not talking about going to the birthday party last night and tying one on. We were at a birthday party last night, okay? Wasn't that. It isn't going down at, uh, you know, suds and buds over here and getting zapped. He's not talking about being drunk like you and I think, like society thinks. That's common sense. Common sense tells you don't go get drunk. Because what happens when you get drunk? Nothing good. It's always bad. So it's not talking about, he's not saying, don't come over here and get all drunk and stuff. But rather, there's something else going on. And when he begins to talk about, and look, we've talked about being filled with the Spirit. What it looks like in the individuals from verse 19 and 20 and 21. Then what does it look like in marriage? In verse 22 uh, down to verse 33. Then what does it look like in the family, the first part of 6? What does it look like on the job there in 6-5 and following and so forth? And we spent months looking at that. And I wanted to hone in on this be not drunk with wine issue because there's something deeper that Paul's after that you and I need to be well aware of. And he again, he's talking about being drunk in a religious sense, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a context of religion. And the issue here, come over to Revelation 17. And we've looked at some of this uh, months ago, so we're going to kind of uh, spend a few minutes rehashing and then move on. Look at Revelation 17. So when he talks here about be not drunk with wine, again, he's talking to the believer, and he's talking about being drunk in a religious context, in a religious sense. And again... <laughs> 17.1, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me. Now, this is John. He's out in the future of us in the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. He's out in the Lord's day. He's future of us. So he's seeing pr prophetically the future. And he says, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So the context, last days, the, there's a religion associated with the Antichrist. There's a religion associated with the end times. Then he says, there's a great whore that sitteth upon many waters. In scripture, many waters, he, he begins to talk about 
and, and, well, the great whore there, if you look down at verse 18, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, that ends up being Babylon. Now, Jerusalem ends up being a spiritual connection there, but that's Babylon, chapter 14, verse 8. It's run, so we're talking about some, a religious center and a religious issue here that goes all the way back to creation, to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's why we went back and looked at the issues of creation, and we saw the DNA issues, and we saw all of that. It wasn't just to waste your time <laughs> or to show you that there's more in your book, than, but it's to say, look, this has a beginning, and it begins with the fall of Lucifer, Satan, the devil. When he fell, there's some things that begin to happen, and it goes back to that guy in Genesis 10, Nimrod, at the Tower of Babel, Babylon. That's where it starts. Now watch verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, this is how she rules over them. The issue of fornication here isn't the physical act. This is a spiritual fornication. And the issue of, the, uh, of, of this intercourse with Baal worship, that false religious system that she's going to represent, that's why verse 5, the titles, notice they're in caps. This is who she is. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery. Isn't that interesting? Mystery. Comma, Babylon the great, comma, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. No, notice they're in all caps. John's yelling this. He's just not, hey, you know, mystery Babylon the great. No, mystery Babylon. Why? Because you, when you write in caps, what are you doing? You're yelling. And that's what he's doing. Her mystery. There's something behind the scene that isn't obvious. That's why we looked at that issue of how Lucifer, how Satan worked with Eve in the garden. When he looked over there and he says, listen, there's something that God doesn't want you to know. And if you join me, then you'll know everything. So she disobeys the word of God, falls for him. And what happened? By one man, sin entered into the world. See, God had set a boundary they disobey. Disobedience is what gets everybody in the end. Mystery. There's something secret. He's got a secret message. A secret, and, and the scriptures calls it the lie. He comes over, Romans 1 verse 25, and he causes the creature. That's you and me. We're the creature. To worship and serve who? Ourselves more than the creator. They take the truth of God's word and turn it into a lie and serve and worship the creature more than the creator. We don't say God's the creator. We say who? We're our own God. And you know what God says to that? Go right ahead. You be your own God and your destiny is hell. The lake of fire. Next question. And it's that straightforward. Notice Babylon the Great. That's her name. That's who she is. She works in a mystery, a mystery form. She's Babylon the Great. That's her name. She's the mother of. That's what she does. She's the source of all the religions of the world. 
She's the mother church. She's the mother. She's the one having all. And notice it's the mother of what? Harlots. That's the offspring. That's the kids. So when you look around the world out there and you see all the different religions, that's her offspring. It comes from one source. And that source has to do with the issue of religion and a religious activity. Look at verse 2 again. Notice what she does. With whom the kings of this earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the what? With the wine of her fornication. She's seducing them. They're drinking wine. She's intoxicated them. They, she's... I can never say I was never, I've never been drunk because then I would be a lie. But what happens? It, you desensitize the stuff, don't you? You get insensitive. You, you, you lose your thinking. You lose your clarity. That's what she's doing to them. But she's using religion to do it. In Isaiah 14 and in verse 12, where he, weak, Lucifer, <clears throat> Excuse me. Talks about the fall of Israel, um, um, uh, fall of Lucifer, and he says he weakened the nations. He understood how to weaken the nations, and how do you do that? He comes in and he institutes a competing religion, a competing idea. So here in Ephesians five eighteen, when Paul talks here about the don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. He's talking about don't be like the pagans out there. Don't be like the religious crowd. They think that they can reach this higher level of life. I mean, think about the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. They built the tower and it what? Reached up into heaven. That thing, you know, people have got these all weird ideas about this thing being a big skyscraper and all. And when you study what the tower represents in Scripture, it has nothing to do with that at all. But what are they, what are they doing? We can reach a what? A higher plane. We can get closer to God. We can have closer to God if we just love one another. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? In our culture today, that's what everything sounds like to a degree. But when you step back onto the world stage, you know what the world looks at you and says? You fool. You go do that over in some of those countries over there in Africa and in other parts of this world, and you know what? They'll cut your head off before they love you. Why? Because their religion tells them to do that. That's what Paul's getting at. Don't be... Don't think like the pagans think. That's not who you are. He's not just talking about drinking, folks. He's talking about participating and being a component of and being associated with the vain religious system that the adversary starts with Eve in the garden. And he pushes it till the end. And he's propagating it. He's trafficking it. He's merchandising it. You know, it's a funny thing. You think about merchandise. Uh, come over to 2 Corinthians 4. He, I was in the Harley shop, which is a shop I, I'm not allowed in anymore, but I was in it. And uh, 
I, I was looking at the, the, the hats. Yeah, yeah, that's what, uh, you know. And you, and you walk in, and, and you know what happens is there's merchandise, what, everywhere. You know, there's a reason why it's called HD. You know, Harley Davidson, it's called $100, because you can't get out with less than 100 bucks. So, and I'm overlooking, and they got stuff everywhere. And the guy comes up, and what does he say? What are you looking for? And I go, I'm not supposed to be in here. He goes, oh, one of those. So what should I call your wife and tell her you're buying? And I was like, not any of that, man. I'll come back when my, my kneecap's gone, you know. What? What's he trying to do? Sell. The adversary, he's got a plan. What's he doing? Selling it. He sold it to the angelic realm. Took them. Now he turns and he sold it to humanity, Adam and Eve. Took them. God says, that's okay, I got a plan. The nation of Israel's developed. He goes, that's no problem, I'll take them. And you know what he does? He introduces Baal worship into them, and he took them. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the sons of, and relatives of Solomon, when Solomon dies, they take the nation of Israel and rip it in two. And you know what Jeroboam does in the north? The rule of God, the word of God is three times a year you go to Jerusalem and worship. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, go. You know what Jeroboam says? You don't need to go down there. We'll put up one in your local neighborhood. You can just go to church down the street. Don't need to go down there. And you know what he caused Israel to do? Sin before the Lord. Woo. Come just competing religion. And you know what? When you read Jeroboam and what he did, it's just off a little bit. Not a lot. Just a little bit. That's what Paul's getting at. Don't be a part of that religious system. Okay? Don't be there. You're not to be there. You're to walk in wisdom. You're to walk in understanding what God's doing today. What is God doing today? He's forming the church, the body of Christ. He's taking unsaved people. They get saved, and he's putting them into Christ, into his body, for an agency that's going to fill up the heavenly places one day. That's what he's doing. Go learn that. Go be that. Now, we'll get there. <laughs> okay? But look here with me at something about the adversary and what he's doing and how he uses religion. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. By the way, every nation has two basic kinds of history when you look at them and when you study them. One is secular. They have a secular history. That's society, culture, law, how it was developed. Who's going to, you know, we were talking in the middle a minute ago, and somebody, uh, they found some tablets, and they've got the law on it of the day. That's culture. But then there's a religious history, a spiritual history, a philosophical, how things are going to now be done. And when you hear the mainline talking heads on TV, and they got this line of, Everybody, let's get along, don't judge, don't do this. And they water down how the world really works. You see, that's a, uh, that's a philosophy. That's a spiritual dumbing down that happens. And the Word of God says, don't you be a part of that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are what? Lost. The lost world out there. Those folks unsaved, not saved, lost, on their way to hell. You know what? Where does a majority of them sit in religion when you back up and think about it? But notice verse number four. 
in whom the God of this world, well, who's that? There's Satan. I, I think about the church lady on Saturday Night Live. That's how old I am. Church, Satan, you know, you Google it or YouTube it, you'll see it. In whom the God of this world hath blinded, now watch, the minds of them which believe not. Now, why does he blind the minds? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But notice verse 4. He's going to blind the minds of the lost. Why? Lest the glorious light of the Savior do what? Shine in. Because what happens when you shine light where there's darkness? Spiritual darkness, is, by the way, is what he's talking about. What happens? Light shows up. Spiritual light. Liberation. Able to see and to understand and to navigate and to do. If you get into a dark room, you guys ever been in those escape rooms? We did one one time at the Bible conference years ago. I didn't go. I have a claustrophobic issue. And I figured if I get in there and I can't get out, I know there's a panic button and all that. It don't matter, right? But think about being in a dark room with no lights on. Well, how are you walking around? Oh, you know. Turn the lights on, what happens? I can miss that beam that I just hit my head on. I can see this. I can do that. But notice the issue of how he blinds the minds. Look over Across the page to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Boy, there's where you need to be. How much plainer is it to say that that you're lost on the way to... Has anyone loved you enough to ask you where you would spend eternity? Have you ever thought about eternity? I know the young people, they don't think about anything but because they're young. Boom. But do you know that you can get in a vehicle, go out, and, and instantly be gone? That's life. It's not fairy tales and all that other stuff. Has anyone ever asked you, where would you spend? Loved you enough to ask you that question. You see, that's plainness of speech. Well, if you'd like to know where to spend eternity based on the authority of God's word, God's word says you're a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, I'm a good guy. It still says you're a sinner. So now what's the answer? There's a redeemer, a savior. And what he did for you was love you and gave himself for you. And all you have to do is do nothing but trust that. See, that's plainness of speech. It isn't the offering box in the back and give, 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 and dance, dance, and do the. It's a plainness of speech. Now watch him do this. Verse 13. And not as Moses. So wait a minute. We're to use plainness of speech and not as Moses. So then what is Moses? Well, the Moses is the law, but that's not the issue. The issue is he's not, Moses is not plainness of speech. Moses is going to be associated with confusion and chaos and turmoil 
Because notice what Moses is going to do here. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. You go back and read Exodus 34, and you know what they say? Moses, why do you got the veil on your face? We can't see you, Moses. What's going on? And Moses has to walk them through what's happening. But there's a veil. You think about a veil over your face. Verse 14. By the way, look to the end of that which is abolished. What ultimately gets abolished? The handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He takes it and nails it to the cross. The law says you're guilty. You're a sinner. You deserve death. Christ died for that. You trust him, Christ says, put my death in their place and takes care of you. Verse 14, but their minds were, what? Blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil. Now notice how Paul links veil and blinding together with Moses. Now again, who is Moses? The great lawgiver. But watch. For unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. What's blinding the minds of the cross? Religion. And what Lucifer, Satan, the devil, Diablos, the big guy, does is he uses religion to do what? Blind the minds. Paul says, don't do that. You're not to be a part of that. You're to walk circumspectly. You're to walk as who you are in Christ. You're to have the love of Christ grip you and fill you. You see that? So when he says, the minds in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them, he doesn't have to worry about Budweiser and Coors Light. He has to worry about what you're doing right now, which is sitting in church learning the word of God rightly divided. That's what he's worried about. So he brings in things that are just off. Not a big off, just off. Come over with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You see, Satan has some tactics. He's got some ploys. You've often heard me say, you can be scriptural, and not dispensational and go to hell. I, oh, man, I'll get the emails now. Woo, 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 woo. That's because if you're not dispensational, which gospel are you following? Are you following repent and be baptized? Are you following the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ? Or are you following Paul that says, hey, Christ died for your sins, just trust him and him alone? You see, there's a tactic here of just off. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There's going to be some tricks. There's going to be some activity from the mystery Babylon, the mother of, that's going to come along, and its design is to take you and to move you away from being filled with the Spirit. There are some things here, verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I, I, you know, you've got to love Paul and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Flesh and blood is not your enemy. Can we just pause for a moment? Come back to Romans 12. Hold on to Ephesians 6. 
Some, sometimes we get so narrow-minded about things that sometimes we just plain out forget stuff. Look at Romans 12, and look at verse number 17. 12, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy, that means what, who's standing in front of you? Flesh and blood. See, if, you're, if thine enemy hunger, what are you going to do? Feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Why? For in, do, in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now go back to 6.12. We don't wrestle again. Wrestle. You know, get all twisted up with flesh and blood. Why? It's not our fight. If you have an enemy, someone who's at odds, what, wouldn't it be the best thing since sliced bread that they got saved and joined the family? Come to learn who they are in Christ. Come to get out of being, go from enemy to friend to really family member in Christ. Well, more, that's, you know, Rick's English, more better than the other. So what are you doing when you got an enemy? As much as live within you to live peaceably, sure, but you're not going to go over there and, you're going to go over there and give them the gospel and help them, and, and you're going to, and by the way, that's not turning the other cheek. I heard a guy the other, I'll just turn the other cheek. No, you know what happens when you turn the other cheek? The other cheek gets hit. So, you know, it's not that. It's just, this is who I am. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against what kind of wickedness? Spiritual wickedness. So our fight, our battle, our struggle is with the fact that there are rulers of the world, the prince of this world, that have an object, ob, 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 uh, uh, a, a, uh, a plan, a, obje, uh, uh, man, that's the object is the word, but it's not coming out right, so just, okay? So they're after you to get you to not be who you are in Christ. Objective, there it is. I get there. You can yell it at me. It's okay. See, their objective is to do what? Get you to do what? Turn just a little over, just a little off and go into something else. And that's the issue that's behind everything. And that's the issue behind what Paul says, be not drunk with wine. He's talking about religion. Okay? Now go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. There's a spiritual warfare that's going on. And Satan has a plan. He's got a word. He's got a wisdom plan. He's got religion. He's got everything he can do to get man to not do what God's word says. Deuteronomy 4 is a very fascinating passage here. Verse 19. So when we live our lives today in the age of grace, there are spiritual forces that control the course of this world, the philosophy, the thinking process, the way things operate, not just the physical things, but the spiritual realm, okay? I'm shifting gears, can you tell? All right? And that we need to get, and we need to grasp, okay? Because when you hear 
mainline whatever out there, whether it's mainline news or Christianity, you begin to hear these buzzwords about God, you know, God's in control. Is God in control? The answer is no. Who's in control of this world? The, the prince of the, the God of this world is. By the way, you know how he's not in control? When Satan tempted the Lord in Matthew 4 and in Mark, uh, Luke 4, the third temptation, he takes him up on there and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, these are mine, I'll give them to you. And you know what the Lord does not say? Nope, they're mine. What are you talking about? You know what he says? Get thee behind me, Satan. No, son. He, doesn't, he doesn't question Satan's authority in running the world because it's his. By the way, it's his lawfully, legally. You know why? Because man broke the covenant. You broke it. You broke the word. So it belongs to him. So when you hear things like that, there's a, there's a reason behind that. There's a, there's a reason why the cemetery, I mean the seminaries produce guys who say that. Because they're promoting a religious mindset. Look at 419, Deuteronomy 419. Fascinating verse here. Uh, by the way, in chapter 4, God is presenting Israel here as his people and so forth. And then in verse 19, he says, Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them. Now watch, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations unto the whole heaven. Do you see that host of heaven, the sun, all of that? There's a, spirit, there's a spiritual issue behind. And what he's talking to Israel, he's warning Israel that that idol you put up there, whether it looks like the sun god or the moon god or the yeg, this or that, it, there's really a spiritual issue going on there. And what God did when, when, when man fell, and when they, you come out of Noah, and, and I'm doing this quickly because of time, in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 and Nimrod, and he confounds the languages and spreads them out. What God did, what does God do in Genesis 12, by the way? Calls out Abraham and his own people, remember? But what did he do with the Gentiles? You know what he did? He took the little gods out there of the tower business that Nimrod had going, and he says, okay, that Gentile, that's your God. That Gentile, that's your God. That nation, there's your God. There's your God, there's your God, and every pagan religion known to man has a God figure, has a flood, has an Adam and Eve, a Garden of Eden figure, has a Savior dying for them. You go study it. I did several years ago when Russell Crowe produced that movie called Noah, and it had nothing to do with the Bible. Dumb thump Christians, oh man, it's woo, the Bible again, in the movie. No. It's a pagan guy, a pagan tribe out of the back end of Africa down there that he just happened to believe is to be true. So I went in and investigated a little bit, and sure enough, guess what that they believe in? An Adam and Eve, so a beginning, a great spirit. By the way, a male and female deity of the great spirit. Yeah. Mother Earth, Father Heaven. And it's like, well, wait a minute. 
Where does it come from? It's got a beginning. And what literally happens here in Deuteronomy 4.19 is God literally gives the control of the Gentiles to the issues of the spiritual wickedness. But he reaches over Genesis 12 and calls out who? Abraham, a people after his name. So what's in the earth? Spiritual wickedness and then truth. So if I'm over here and I want truth, I know where to go, don't I? I go over here. If I don't want truth, I just stay the way it is. And what happens is, is when we become members of the body of Christ, and we go, well, I can just go visit my old church. What happens? Well, Paul says a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. Paul says, no, as a believer, you need to put on the armor. You need to put on who you are in Christ. You need to stand there. And you know what you need to do? You don't need to go back over there. So God takes the nations, the Gentiles, and sets them up under spiritual wickedness. Numbers 23, verse 9, God says that Israel is not numbered among the Gentiles. So guess what? They have God of the Bible as their God. You follow that? Okay. Okay? Now, come over to Judges 9. We're going to do this real quick, and that's why some of the verses on your handout there will be for you to have to investigate further. Each nation, again, has those two history points, the secular and then the spiritual. But Israel has a third historical aspect, and that is the history of being God's people, okay? Being God's representative in the earth. And in Judges 9, there are four trees listed that identify that represent a, the, the nation of Israel. They're used to describe the nation and its functions and its identity. Now, you have to remember, Judges 7 and 8, Gideon and his mighty 300 do their thing and march and everything. And uh, he, uh, Jotham is going to speak a parable here about uh, Abimelech. And off we go. Now, look at 9-7. We'll get them real quick here. And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount uh, Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried and said unto them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign thou over us. So what do you think the trees are going to represent if they're talking about have a king over us? Kingdoms, people groups, nations, right? Okay, where'd they go? They went to the olive tree and said, reign over us, right? But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness wherewith by me 
wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees. And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees. Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou, and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow, and if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon. What, you see, you got the four trees. You've got some interesting things going on here. There's a picture here of how God views Israel. They are an olive tree, they are a fig tree, they are a vine tree, and they are also a bramble, the sticker bush. Okay? By the way, the bramble's the only one that said, if you want me, you're signing up 100% to get me. You keep reading and Abimelech's going to get them. Okay? So God has a purpose here for Israel as the olive, the fig, the vine, and the bramble, but the bramble's not where they're supposed to be. So when you think about this, about what's going on here, and the nation, the nations come to Israel and say, we see your blessings, we see who you are, we see the benefits of having God, and we want you to rule over us. And what do they say? No, thank you. What does the olive tree say? No. What does the fig say? No. What's the vine say? No. You know what the bramble says? Yeah, oh yeah, you're mine, baby. Woohoo. Apostate Israel, here we come. So you've got some things that are happening here. By the way, well, the four trees, just real quick, quickly. The olive. Got five minutes to do an hour and a half, okay? The olive. We can get her done in 10. Just give me a chance. The olive tree. The olive tree represents the spiritual history and life of the nation of Israel. The olive tree represents the access that Israel had to God, the spiritual benefits. The first time the olive tree shows up in scriptures, Genesis 8, Noah's on the boat, sends out the dove, comes back with what in his beak? Remember? The olive branch. There's the, the olive tree there, and, and there's new life in the earth, so it's time to get off the boat now. You think about Acts chapter 10 and, 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 and Hebrews 1 and Exodus, and they anoint the priest with what kind of oil? Olive oil. So olive, the, the oil of, of gladness, a picture of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews calls it. So olive pictures the capacity of Israel to be the channel of blessings for the kingdoms and for the, for the families of the earth, Genesis 12 says. 1 Kings 6, when David uh, puts out that pattern of the temple that Solomon's going to build, those front doors are made out of olive wood because for them to pass through into the blessings, they have to go through who they are in Christ, that channel of blessing. Then you have, so again, the olive tree has... All, has everything to do with access to God through Israel. Okay? So for the nations of the earth to have access to God, where do they got to go? Israel. Get in. Okay? Next one, fig tree. The fig tree 
is a picture of the religious life of Israel. And now what happens is, is you get over and you begin to read some of Schofield and Bullinger and those guys, and they say, no, the fig tree is a representative of the national life. Because don't you know, the fig, when the fig tree buds, then Israel's in. But that's not the case when you go into Scripture. Because in the fig tree, do you remember when the fig tree showed up the first time? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, what they sew together? Fig leaves for britches. Cover them up. What does religion do? Helps you cover up. It's their religious life. It's a performance system. And it's the, in James 1, he's, it says that pure religion was only given to Israel. And it's that outward demonstration of the spiritual life and that the spiritual life was designed to produce fruit. And it sits on that fig tree. It's the fig tree that the Lord looks at, that says to the Father, give me another year with it and I'll ding, dung around it and dig and hopefully it will produce fruit. It's the fig tree that the Lord comes to and it's barren. It's, a fig, it's their religious life. It's who they are. Then you have a, the vine tree. And the vine tree is a picture of Israel as a nation. Come over to Psalms 80. You've got to see this. Just I think about this. You, you just Psalms 80. When you read guys and they say, well, the fig is this, the national life, and the vine is the religious life, we'll always remember Psalms 80, verse 8. Thou hast brought a what? A vine. Out of where? Out of Egypt. What came, who came out of Egypt? The nation of Israel did. So the vine, the vineyard, Luke 13, plant a vineyard, has to do with what? The nation of Israel, the national life. Here's who they are. The nation. He planted a vineyard in the land, the Gospels say. There's a national, you come over to Isaiah 5, you, you, it's there on your paper for you, Isaiah 5, the first seven verses. Well, you know what, let's look at it, come on. All right, Isaiah 5, quickly, it's just a few pages over. Some of you are glassing over, just hang on, it's okay. You know, the, the Cardinals don't play till 3 or 2.30 or something, you're okay. That's right, they don't win. Look at, look at Isaiah 5. Look at verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved, touching his, what? Vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, where is the fruitful hill? Jerusalem and Judea. There's the land. What's he planting? He's planting a vineyard. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his, ple his pleasant plant, he and so forth. So the vine has to do with what? The national life. There they are. By the way, if you look at verse 2, there's some wild grapes, and it brought, the end of that verse, it brought forth wild grapes. And then you have the bramble. Come over to Hosea. Find Hosea. It's after Daniel. Daniel, Hosea. Hosea 10. Come on, Hosea 10. Hosea chapter number 9, 
In verse number 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw her fathers as the first stripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal, Peor, and separated themselves unto that shame. And their abomination were according as they loved. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars and so on. What's happened now? Now they're that bramble. They're the sticker bush. Okay? All four trees are in the Garden of Eden in Adam. Come back to Genesis. Genesis 3. Genesis 2. Genesis 3. All four of these trees sit in the Garden of Eden. The bramble... They've become an empty vine, no value, no fruit. That's what's happened to Israel's spiritual life. It was designed to manifest the religion that God gave them and to flourish and to prosper and to be plentiful. But yet it went into apostate, Genesis 2, or Genesis 3, sorry. And when that happened, guess what? No fruit. Cut her down. It's over. Now watch Genesis 3, watch verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they, were, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Fig leaves, they have to have a what there? <laughs> a fig tree, you know? Have you ever messed with fig leaves? They're not the softest thing in the, in, in the field. <laughs> a little scratchy, a little itchy. But you know what? Religion is not made to make things soft. They want to make you feel it and hurt it, you know? And if there's not enough guilt, we'll give you some more guilt. And, you know, and it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Look at verse 18. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, as he talks to Adam. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. There's your bramble, the thorns and the thistle. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden. The tree of life. Where do they get their spiritual life from? What tree? The olive tree. So the tree of life is really an olive tree. Okay? That's where they get their life. Their access to God. By the way, in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, God says, hey, unless man goes down there and eats of that tree of life and is living forever, we're going to put some cherubs over there and keep him away from it. Why? Because that's life. Keep reading verse 9. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what tree's left? The vine tree. You've got the fig tree, the bramble tree, and the olive tree, the spiritual the spirit of God, the life, the access to God. Now you've got this vine tree. And what begins to happen in religion, okay, is that they begin to play word games. And they say Adam and Eve ate a apple. Well, what did they really eat? They, eat? they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but what kind of tree is it? It's a vine tree. What grows on a vine? Grapes. They didn't eat an apple. They ate a grape. That's what they ate. 
That's what caused. By the way, their sin wasn't eating the fruit. Their sin was disobedience to the word of God. How, by the way, how they get that apple business is the Latin Bible uses a word. It's M-A-L-U-S. That's the word for apple in Latin. M-A-L-U-S. Okay? The Latin word for evil is M-A-L-U-M. One letter off. So the Roman Catholic Church and the big religion guys... They go with the S and not the M because we can't have evil. We gotta have, so it's got to be an apple. In fact, it's what? It's a grape. If the vine, the grape. Now, if you just think about Scripture, think about Numbers chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow. He's not to have what kind of drink? Do you remember? He's to shave his head. He's to do no strong drink. Remember we talked about the wine, wine and uh, the uh, the bottle in the Bible, you know what months ago. <laughs> no strong drink. There's three things. He's not to have the fermented wine. He's to sh- he's not to shave his hair. He's to let it go. He's not to touch a dead body. Over and over through the Scripture. When you look at this issue, when Paul says, "Don't be." drunk with wine. He's talking about the issue of spiritual wickedness. Don't be like that. You can go to Deuteronomy 32, and you can look down through there, and you can see Israel over and over again drink the wrong wine. They drink grapes of gall, clusters of bitter. They're over in Baal worship. They're not over in the sweet wine where they're supposed to be. They're in the other departments. Come to 2 Timothy 3. And we'll finish up, okay? Maybe. You see, folks, he's not talking about going out and getting something at the liquor store and being on the sauce the rest of the day. He's not talking about that at all. Common sense tells you don't do that. He's talking about the spiritual consumption that produces a vain religious system in your life and that it manifests itself and it begins to take over. It's got a mystery form to it. You don't even see it coming. It's just a little off. It's not quite on. Just a hair off. Well, a hair, you know, a truth, truth can be 99.9%, right? No. It's got to be 100%. Because the point one is a what? Is the lie component that isn't true. 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse 5. Helps to get there. Having a, notice this, form of godliness. Notice how Paul says this for you and I. A what kind of, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. A form of godliness. You know what? It's not quite there. But you know what? It sure looks right. It sure smells right. They sure talks right. Right? The other day, uh, Linda and I and the kids, we went down and toured 
the temple, the Mormon temple that they just redid and opened. I was interested to see it. We had done it at another one, and I wanted to see compare them in my mind. And you walk in, and the gaudiness of religion was just out of this world. It's like, holy cow. And you walk through, and you, and you see this and that, and, you, and they got placards explaining what's going on. And the lady, this one, they talk to you. The other ones, they say, stay on the path, or else you're going to get nailed. <laughs> You know, I'm over off the path looking under the books, you know, looking around. You know, no, get back on the path, sir. You know, I'm like, okay. Because they don't want your feet dirtying up their beautiful white carpet. And because we're in the celestial room. And we're going to do this. And, we're, and I'm sitting here going, what happens to folks who are in that system when life reaches up and pops them right in the nose? Because they're going to go back to a system that's going to let them down follow that you walk down and they talk about the baptismal and they can baptize for the dead and all this stuff and they got 12 oxen and all this to 12 tribes and I'm sitting here going that's empty there's nothing real there but you know what happens with that religious system they promote a big family picture don't they I know folks in that religion who say that that family picture is a farce it is a lie of the devil because their family has been in trouble. And you know what it did? It let them down. So they call the preacher neighbor. And they go, oh, what, what? and I said, you know what you need? You need a savior. You have a form of godliness. They look right. They smell right. They, they dress, you know, all this stuff. But, what it, but they deny the power thereof. And what you need is a savior. And it's like, well, we have a Savior. I said, no, no, you need the Savior because their Savior is themselves if they do. And so you walk through and you just begin to deal with them on a plainness of speech. And you know what happens? That family, they ended up moving away from us, but they have no help. Paul says, you have help. You have it in who you are in Christ. That's why when we close with Ephesians 5.18 again, he says what? Be not drunk with wine. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Be separate. That first, uh, oh, man, what is it? 1 Corinthians 6? 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Come out from among that. Don't touch the young. Why? Because what's it going to do to you? It's going to mess you up. It'll never take you out of who you are in Christ. But it'll sure make you ineffective for the work of the ministry that you have in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your acquaintances. You and I, we have a ministry that we're to do as ambassadors. Have a plainness of speech. Folks, if folks don't know they're lost and on their way to hell, then there's no reason to talking to them about heaven and heavenly places and all the stuff in the future because they ain't going to understand it until they understand what? They're lost, on their way to hell, they need a Savior. That family that lived next to us, they wanted a five-step program to get out of the trouble that their daughter was in. I gave them a one-step. Get saved. Second step, study the Word. And what will happen? It will begin to impact them. Read three chapters a day. That's simple. It impacts you. So when Paul says, 
be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Don't be a part of that religious system because it's a ploy of the devil, the adversary, to remove you from the battlefield. And that's what we're going to go look at next, okay? There's a ploy to all of this, not just to waste an hour in the morning on Sunday. There's a ploy. And when you see things in society happening, there is a spiritual wickedness behind it. And you may say, yeah, but Rick, what about, it doesn't matter. There's a spiritual wickedness behind it. And what happens is we lose sight of that and we concentrate in on the flesh and blood. And really our battle is back there. The great deep state, you heard that back in politics over the couple years, right? The deep staters. You know the real deep state is Lucifer and the lie program. That's the real deep state. That's the real conspiracy theory. Because what's he doing? <laughs> and you know what the dumb thump Christians do? Hook, line, and sinker. Bite it. And then, they're, and then instead of studying the word and who they are in Christ, they're over in something else. Okay? Now, I get off of all that. Get off my stump. Okay? Be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Fo let's focus on that. The room like this, it wouldn't, it would be a shame. <laughs> you know, you look around, I know a lot of you. I know we have the internet. If you don't know where you're spending eternity, you need to settle that question today. Because you can go out and a slip and a fall and be gone. And when that happens, you're going to be absent from this life and you're going to be present in eternity somewhere. And it would be better to be in heaven than in hell. But how you get there is by trusting that Christ died for your sins, was, born, was buried and rose again the third day. The moment you're trusting, don't walk the aisle between you and God and your heart and your, your mind, trusting, then you pass from death to life. And then come and let's learn about that life we have in Christ. Again, it's not walking the aisle. We don't have a baptismal. If you think you need that, I got a bathtub next door we can fill up, but you don't need that. You just need to trust Christ and what he accomplished at Calvary, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, for the instruction in it, for the look into it to see what's really going on around us today. And Lord, I just pray that we won't be sucked into what's not real, but rather we would stand on what is real and give you the praise and the honor and the glory in doing that because you've equipped us to be able to do it. And that it's not our activity, it's the activity of you living out in our life, your life. And we can give you the praise and the glory for that. In your name we pray, amen.